Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, how the undoing of Roe v. Wade could impact the health of black women and why black maternal health is in crisis. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. We know that here in North Carolina, women have the choice to decide what to do in the case of an unintended pregnancy. However, there are regulations and restrictions around exercising that choice, and there's interest among Republicans to broaden those restrictions. Together with Roe v. Wade no longer upholding a woman's constitutional right to choose, many are sounding the alarm about how these changes could impact black women especially. But how? I want to welcome Tanasia Henson, campaign coordinator for Repro Action, a reproductive justice and abortion advocacy organization. Thank you so much for spending the time to be with us, Tanasia. Absolutely. Thank you for having me here. Tanasia, what is Repro Action? So at Repro Action, we are an abortion access advocacy organization um, that aims to advance reproductive justice. Um, so for us, that means looking at expanding education on self-managed abortion with pills, as well as exposing the dangers of anti-abortion fake clinics um, around the country. Well, it's important to understand that women, once again, still have access to abortion services in North Carolina. Should that change, however, say with the imposition of uh, the 20-week abortion ban or a complete ban, how might that affect current health disparities among Black women? So... <clears throat> Black women are disproportionately affected by medical racism when it comes to carrying their pregnancies to term. So when we have a limited access to abortion care, it becomes more dangerous for women to carry their pregnancies fully to term and limits the ability for them to access care that aligns best with their needs at the time. And there are statistics out there about um the rate of abortion. And the CDC reports that black women in the U.S. are nearly four times more likely to have abortions than white women. Why is the rate so high among African-American women? And is, and is targeting at play? I would not say targeting is at play. I would say the reality of the world we live in as black people is at play. Um, we are made to make choices that are difficult um, and live in a world where accessing food and housing and healthcare is incredibly more challenging than it is for our white peers. Um, no, black women are not targeted um, for abortions. I think that that is a talking point that can be used in ways that um, negatively affects um, the access to abortion. Um, I would say that Black people get abortions for many reasons, um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the inequality that Black people face um, in terms of access to healthcare, in terms of access to food, and in terms of access to housing, which are all things you need um, to have a child um, and to birth uh, safely um, 
and to raise a family. So some of those challenges might be the reasons why um, someone has made the decision, the difficult decision, to terminate a pregnancy, knowing that there's um, that it that bringing a child into the world could land them in poverty. Um, what would you say then, if, if that's the primary case? And, and quite frankly, there is documentation out there. There is research that's been done to show that a lot of the times the reasons why people are making those choices, in particular African-American women, has to do with environmental um, conditions. Can you talk a little bit about some of the environmental conditions in addition to um, access to to food, you know, and um, and jobs and that kind of thing impacting their their economic status. What are some things that are happening in um, areas for Black women that might might also impact their need or or, or desire to to terminate pregnancy? Yes, um, I think a big one uh, that I particularly think about is um, housing as a human right. Um, we cannot expect people to raise children in places where they cannot make a meal and give their children a bath and, you know, spend quality time with their families. Um, and so until we can create the circumstances in which our environments um, value us, as full humans deserving of homes and food and healthcare, it is really difficult to raise a child and it's very dangerous to um, make abortion bans. Well, what do you say to those who would argue that, you, that people make a decision um, that could lead to an, intend, an unintended pregnancy? What about the responsibility of those individuals to make the kinds of decisions and choices before they get pregnant? Again, we live in a world where birth control is not accessible, in a world in which sex education is not comprehensive. Um, and it is our rights as humans to live in our bodies and do what we want with them in safe ways. Um, and if that is the argument somebody is making, I might ask them to reevaluate and mind their own business a little more. Why do you care about this issue so much? I care about this issue because I have lived a life that has shown me the value in getting to choose when to start a family. Um, and I am deeply grateful for the care that I have received in my life. Um, and for the care that other people in my life have received. Women who choose to carry their babies to term want a positive experience and a healthy baby. But there are racial disparities in the outcomes for black pregnant women. This fact was brought to greater light recently when tennis great Serena Williams revealed to Elle magazine the life-threatening medical ordeal that she endured after delivering her baby, all because her medical providers dismissed her complaints. According to the CDC, black women are three to four times more likely to die 
die after childbirth than white women from preventable complications. To share more, I want to bring to the discussion Dr. Jennifer Tang, a practicing OBGYN at UNC Health and co-lead on a study called A Cure for Moms aimed at decreasing pregnancy complications for all women, but especially for black women. Thank you so much for joining the discussion, Dr. Tang. And um, what Serena Williams described is not uncommon, unfortunately. Why are so many more black women dying after childbirth, and what are some of those uh, preventable complications? Well, black patients are unfortunately at much higher risk from not just dying from childbirth, but also pregnancy-related complications and having a preterm birth or low birth weight. And it goes back to a lot of different social determinants of health that um, have, they've been disadvantaged to in this country because of our history of structural racism. And you know, even black, you know, wealthy people like Serena Williams, who had access to excellent medical care and were not living, facing the same social determinants of health, still have worse outcomes than call, uh, white patients who've not even gone to college. So that shows that it's not just about poverty. There is something else going on. And we do think that structural racism, unfortunately, plays a large part in that. Tanasia, is this something that you've heard of, Serena Williams' story? Oh, absolutely. And unfortunately, I was not surprised. Why weren't you surprised? <clears throat> it's incredibly common for Black women especially to be um, overlooked or um, not particularly heard um, when they're in the hospital. Um, and doulas, in fact, play an important role in filling that gap um, to make sure that patients are listened to. Very well. Um, Dr. Tang, we know that the disparity exists. How is this study that you're involved in designed to help save lives? So our study is called A Cure for Moms, and what it aims to do is to randomize 40 prenatal clinics across the state of North Carolina to one of four groups. So 10 uh, prenatal clinics basically will randomize to standard care, so no intervention, but 10 will be randomized to what's called data interventions. And I want to emphasize that these data interventions are designed through community-based participatory research. There's a group that's local called Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative, which worked with UNC researchers for over 17 years to design interventions for the original ACURE study, which focused on cancer disparities. And what they were able to do through these data interventions was decrease um, the disparity between black and white patients completing their cancer treatments for lung and breast cancer. And of course, it benefited all patients because white patients improved their outcomes as well. And so we wanted to basically implement these two data interventions to see if we could also make a difference for the disparities in pregnancy care for black and white patients. So those two data interventions are to basically have race stratified data presented to the practices every quarter for two years. And what I mean by that is they will be able to look at their low birth weights or look at the maternal morbidity and mortality every quarter, but stratified by race so they can see what the outcome is for black patients and for white patients. Because a lot of people will say, oh, I don't treat patients differently, or you know, it's, you know, there's not really a difference. But by showing doctors the data, what they found in the original CURE study was that it did help the providers to you know, think together of how they can make improvements for their practice and their patients. The second data intervention that they implemented was what was called a warning system. 
system. And so if patients weren't meeting, reaching their mi mi milestones for cancer treatment, you know, getting chemotherapy or radiation, you know, there was a nurse navigator who was alerted and who would then reach out to the patients and try to figure out, you know, what were the barriers? Was it transport? Was it childcare? Was it the way they were treated in the office that made them feel unwelcome? So we feel that we can also set up something similarly for maternal care where, you know, if patients don't reach their milestones or if they, you know, weren't screened for tobacco use or some other, you know, preventable, uh, modifiable risk factor for bad uh, maternal outcomes, you know, we can address it at that time. So again, 10 practices will be randomized to those data interventions. So then in group three, we have 10 practices that will be uh, randomized to community-based doula intervention. And this is, you know, goes along with what Tanasia was saying. There is a lot of evidence that shows that doulas can really improve outcomes. You know, we're talking about randomized controlled trials, the highest quality evidence out there. And so there was a, you know, Cochrane review of over 27 studies that showed that doulas can help to reduce cesarean rates, improve the APGAR scores for babies, um, which is, you know, a sign of how, how they're doing at birth, and also dep uh, reduce depressive symptomology. And what we found also locally in Greensboro was that there was a study that used community-based doulas and offered them to patients who are predominantly black and those who chose to have a doula um, throughout their pregnancy and you know during delivery and postpartum had four times lower the rate of a, a low birth weight, which again was phenomenal because people have been trying to reduce low birth weight for years and have not had any success. So that we, is very interesting. And it's exciting to learn that from the cancer study that was very similar to what you're getting ready to do, doctors, once they learned what the um, issues were and that there were issues, they were open to making a change. And I think that people need to understand how important that is, that um, there might be, people might be overlooking how they are treating you, but once it is brought to their awareness or what's is brought to your awareness, awareness, you make the change. And so that, that's very promising, um, not only in the, the birthing space, but, but in other spaces as well. So I, I want to know more about what a doula is, what she does. I know that, uh, Tanasia, you're actually training to be a doula. What can you share with us about what you've learned about what doulas do? So something I like to say in the simplest of terms is doulas are your pregnancy bestie, um, pregnancy, postpartum, um, even like infertility treatments, you can have a doula. Um, and our job is to know the goals and the plan and everything that the pregnant person wants for their pregnancy and for their birth and postpartum time and to do our best to help them meet that. Um, and to also be confidants and support people. And when we're in medical settings, be able to listen and be a helpful ear to make sure that all of the information that doctors are sharing is being absorbed and that also the patients are being heard by the doctors as well and making sure that the needs and maybe even concerns that patients have are being properly relayed. That's so interesting. So they're really an intermediary. And uh, Dr. Tang, have you worked with doulas in your practice? 
I have been working with two community-based doula organizations right now to to um, improve you know outcomes in this study, and so yes, I have uh, had exposure to doulas, although I haven't you know worked one-on-one -on -one with doulas in the delivery room yet. But what I love to you know about doulas is that they can really serve as the medical bridge, you know, as as uh, Tanasia said, the intermediary. Because as doctors, you know, we often only get 15 to 20 minutes to talk to our patients, and then we sometimes use words. Um, you know, one of my community collaborators. Uh, Cindy McMillan says, you know, we often use the word BMI, which is body mass index, but that's a medical term and not everyone knows. So she'll say, you know, people are always asking me after, like, what do they mean about my BMI? <laughs> you know, these are things that I just f I forget and other doctors, because we're, we, we get so trained in, you know, medical terminology, we forget, you know, what is a medical word versus not. And then patients don't feel empowered to speak up or, you know, they may feel their doctor's already feeling rushed or behind. And, you know, they come out of the appointment not knowing really what was said to them and what they were supposed to do. And this is where the doulas really play such an important role, you know, as a team member of helping this patient have an outcome, have a healthy outcome, is that they can, you know, be that medical interpreter, that bridge between, you know, the, the doctor in the office and what the patient, you know, needs to understand. Um, and then she can also, you know, be that advocate. If a patient doesn't understand, she can help to voice those concerns. She can help to explain um, to both the doctor and the patient, you know, where there maybe have been some miscommunication. So I, I really think they can play such an important role in helping us to you know, improve pregnancy outcomes. And they're integral to the current study that you're involved in. Are doulas expensive? Well, so, you know, doulas charged various rates, but um, what is one of the biggest challenges and inequities is that patients who need doulas the most cannot afford to pay for them. And yet the patients, the, the doulas who know the patients the best from the, the same community of the patients of who are high risk can't afford to do this work for free, right? And so we need to make sure that doulas are paid fairly for their work um, and that patients who can access it, uh, that patients who need it the most can access it. So it's very important that we find ways to make sure that doulas are properly reimbursed, particularly for those patients who are most vulnerable at, at risk and can't afford it. Let's talk a little bit about low birth weight. Um, in the ch in children, what is one of the contributors, or what are some of the contributors to low birth weight, regardless of the socioeconomic status of the birth mom? So there's two major drivers of low birth weight that I'll focus on. One is a preterm birth. And preterm birth, that rate is much higher, um, twice as high in black patients than white patients, and that both in the U.S. and in North Carolina. And preterm birth has a lot of, you know, really negative consequences for the baby. They end up staying in the hospital much longer. It's really stressful for the baby and the mom and the family. And if you want to, you know, think of it holistically, it's really expensive for our healthcare system to be supporting all these babies in the NICU because that care is really expensive, although essential. The other major driver of um, low birth weight is what we call hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, which is the fa fancy way to say, you know, high blood pressure, and it's related preeclampsia. Because what happens when people have high blood pressure is it uh, reduces the blood flow to the placenta and then to, to the baby, and so it doesn't grow as well. And this, again, is associated with long-term, you know, sequelae for the baby. Um, they might have more developmental problems, you know, if, if they're smaller than they were supposed to be at birth, whether it's be from prematurity or, you know, or, you know, hypertensive disorders. And then also has long-term sequela for the mom, because if somebody has, you know, hypertension, it's often a result of, you know, chronic weathering and stress that they've had in their life, which we know black patients face, particularly black uh, women or people who identify as women uh, throughout their lifetime because of all the microaggressions 
microaggressions and other you know, challenges that they face in their life. Yes, and the social determinants of health as well. And we often talk about that. That's one of those terms that we use. What can, can you kind of explain a little bit more about what social determinants of health are and how heavily they impact the health of black women in particular? So, you know, transportation, housing, childcare, these are all challenges that, you know, pa black patients particularly have been um, unfortunately disadvantaged to have good access to in this country because of historical um, things that have, you know, laws and other things that have happened in this country. And so it makes it harder for them to get to the prenatal clinic. It makes it harder for them to get healthy foods. And, and healthy foods are expensive too. So finding, you know, nutritious foods, it, you know, there are what we call food deserts, you know, that are a real issue for patients to be able to get the nutrition. You know, having um, not adequate nutrition is another, you know, risk factor for low birth weight. And also, and, and I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but these are some of the things that are associated with um, a, a challenging or economically disadvantaged environment. But there are women who, um, who, do not have a socioeconomic disadvantage, but are still um, experiencing low birth weight children and are affected by social determinants. Maybe they have arrived at a, at a place at a, or a station in life, but early in their own lives, there was um, trauma or there was suffering or there was poverty. And these are some of the, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, social determinants of health. And Tanasia, you know, jump on in um, if you'd like to, to share what you've learned about social determinants of health. But, it, but it's attached to the things, as I understand, that you experience when you're two, three years old. I just think it's important to understand that these are impacts and that perhaps it's education um, for the women who are experiencing low birth weight to know that this is a challenge in your life or this could be a challenge in your life that could impact your pregnancy, that could impact your baby. And so um, even, even mental counseling and therapy and uh, doing things to just kind of nurture yourself are gonna help. Are those kinds of uh, I guess, interventions incorporated into the study, or do you evaluate those things, Dr. Tang? Yes, we are evaluating. Um, so we will be you know, surveying about 100 patients from each of the 40 practices to understand their experiences with everyday racism, lifetime racism, as well as discrimination in medical care to see how that aligns with their outcomes. You know, During pregnancy, we only get about nine months right, to really intervene. And it's true that our study won't be able to undo all of the lifetime racism that a patient has faced. And, and so black patients will still be at a disadvantage um, because of that lifetime racism. But what we hope to decrease is the institutional interpersonal racism, kind of the implicit biases that patients, doctors and providers unfortunately sometimes have um, when, when they're treating patients. They may treat somebody just a little different based on how they look um, or how they act. And so what we really want to do is focus on making sure that patients during their pregnancy and postpartum care, you know, get uh, the same treatment as all other patients and are treated um, not in a condescending fashion, but you know, in in a kind of shared dis patient decision-making fashion, where you know we make decisions together. And again, this is where the doulas can really pl play an important role. Um, and then we want to just make sure any kind of structural factors. You know, if there is some kind of discriminatory practice that's happening, you know, at an institution that's disadvantaging black patients. Again, by looking at the data, we hope that you know practices and providers can help to undo some of the structural racism you know that may exist, as well as some of the kind of 
interpersonal um, racism that can, an implicit bias that exists during pregnancy care. Well, definitely the study that you're involved in is aimed and, and probably will be very successful in trying to identify some of those problem areas. Uh, one last question I wanted to, to get out to you, Tanasia, concerns funding. I mean, it, and if our state um, and our leaders are truly interested in making sure that uh, more women are, are giving birth in a healthy way to healthy children, then the funding, I should think, would follow that. I know that there's a momnibus bill out there, but there's also funding in uh, pregnancy crisis centers, but there's concern about that funding. What can you share about those concerns, Tanasia? Well, I can share with you that crisis pregnancy centers, um, I call them anti-abortion fake clinics, um, they are not using <clears throat> their their practices are not always in good faith, um, and they use <clears throat> excuse me, and they use. Um, shame um, and misleading information to influence choices that pregnant people make about whether or not they can or should um, carry their pregnancy to term. Um, so funding those kinds of institutions that outnumber abortion clinics in North Carolina um, is taking away from the many, many, many other resources that need to be funded in order to make sure birthing and abortion care in this state um, is safe and accessible. Well, Tanasia Henson, Dr. Jennifer Tang, thank you so much for your insights and for sharing about your work today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us today, and we invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. through the financial contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.